you know, it's the hard times where we turn to God. When, when things are going well, we tend to say, well, look at me, I'm pretty good, I'm smart. And, and that's just the human condition. When you look at the kind of people Jesus went to, they were the disadvantaged, they were the people with leprosy, my goodness, we, nobody would touch someone with leprosy, but Jesus did. And uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing as Jesus followers as well. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Philip Yancey has written and published at least 25 books. I was a teenager the first time I read a book by Philip Yancey. His honesty, his willingness to wade into difficult questions, and more to the point, his unwillingness to give easy answers to those difficult questions have made him one of my favorites. In his latest book, published by Revit Room Press, Philip Yancey engages one of my other favorites, the 17th century poet and preacher John Donne. Undone is Philip Yancey's modern rendering of John Donne's Devotions, a collection of prose meditations that Donne wrote on his sickbed in 1623. When he wrote them, or at least when he started writing them, Donne thought he was on his deathbed. Philip Yancey has done us all a favor by making Donne's gorgeous but often convoluted prose more accessible to 21st century readers. Philip Yancey, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast again. I'm just delighted to have you here. It's good to be back. I've uh, yeah. I've been looking forward to this talk for some time. Well, good. Uh, your new book uh, is undone, but it is a what do you what would you call this? A transposition, a a rendering of John Donne's devotions from 1623. What 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 noun do you use to describe what you've done here? Rendering is what the Reverend Press has chosen, and I think that's good. We might use the word paraphrase. Just think of uh, the Bible. The Bible was written about that same era, 1611, 1623, just a few years mm -hmm. apart. And there are all sorts of Bibles, from the very literal one on the one hand to the old King James Version, which is more increasingly hard for people to read and understand. Yeah all the way to paraphrases like uh, Living Letters by Ken Taylor or The Message by by Eugene Peterson. And um, in my case, my goal was simply to make this wonderful book, which I picked up in the middle of the pandemic, to make it accessible to people because it's full of wisdom, but it's got some really weird stuff in there yeah. because the, the science has changed a lot, the medicine has changed a lot, but between those kind of odd passages, there is a there's just a brilliant portrayal of what it's like to wrestle with God in the way, say, Job wrestled with God. Mm -hmm. and here's here's a guy, John Dunn, who was the vicar of the largest church in England, who was commissioned to bring comfort to a city that was being torn apart by a pandemic, and then he gets the plague. Or at least he thinks it's the plague. Yeah. Yeah. And so for about six weeks, he lies there just struggling and trying to come to terms with uh, his own fear, his own guilt, uh, his anger, all of that stuff that we go through when some gross injustice happens. Yeah. You describe him as having a, um, uh, a passive aggressive approach to God in these devotions that he wrote. That's right. And I, I just mentioned Job, and I've been reading Job just lately, and he's the same way. Job would maybe a little more aggressive than John Donne. John Donne was a man of the cloth, 
Yeah. So he still had, you know, the respectability about him, but Job didn't care. He had been mistreated and he's going to let God know it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Dunn would, uh, uh, come close to accusing God. And then yeah. he would remember, wait a minute, I've got kind of a Randy past myself. And, uh, maybe God is, uh, at one point he says, nailing me to a bed, you know, yeah, <laughs> getting me back for some of the things I did in my youth. And, yeah. and so, uh, yeah, Dunn is such a witty guy. He can kind of step out of himself, take on a different persona, persona judge himself, and then slip back into who he really is. Yeah. And, and, and so, I, yeah, I use that word passive aggressive, which, of course, is a modern psycho psychology <laughs> term. But uh, yeah. I think it applies to Dunn. Yeah. His ability to explore these ideas. I mean, even what you just said, I'm stuck on the bed dying on the bed and then he and then the the idea occurs to him am i being punished for some of the shenanigans that i have committed in in beds in my past yeah um an idea that i would have never thought about but it 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 just i don't know that that's not even a question i i just i'm trying to get i guess i would just love to hear you talk about mm. the ways you dealt with dunn's uh wildly imaginative imagery mm -hmm. And I uh, I come away with great respect for it. You know, that's one of the things I like about Jesus. I've tried now and then to write a parable, and it's really hard to write <laughs> one parable. And Jesus wrote, what, three dozen, something like that, and or didn't write them, just spoke them on the spot. <laughs> and you imagine, you know, somebody says, uh, uh, how do I get eternal life? Well, you you love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, just on the spot, out yeah. of nowhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are, 2,000 years later, still telling that story. And you yeah. mentioned Good Samaritan. Everybody knows what you're talking about. But that's an image. That's a powerful image. And he did that again with weeds and tares and, and prodigal son and, mm -hmm. you know, all of those great things. And, and done us a little bit like that. Uh, a bell will ring. And, and, uh, you know, we study in high school the phrase, for whom the bell tolls, it tolls me for thee. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he, he just takes off from there. Or the doctors come in and examine him and he thinks, oh, it's kind of like cartographers pouring mm -hmm. over a map, you know, yeah. around the table here. Oh, let's try this. Oh, the mountain's over here. That's a problem. And, uh, he just seems to spin them out of, out of the thin air. Yeah. And what's even more extraordinary, of course, is that he wasn't using notes. You know, I'm I've got a computer database, I've got <laughs> online access to any question I want right away. He's lying there, forbidden by his doctors to even consult the Bible or any of his books. And yeah. feverish, probably 104 degree temperature at times. And then he comes up with one of the great works of literature of all times. It's uh it's on everybody's best hundred books of the millennium you know of the millennium yeah. it's, it's just yeah. an amazing piece of work i i would wonder if the fever was maybe the source of some of that wild imagery except that he did it his whole life and everything he wrote uh, yeah he did it he just had one of those amazing imaginations that would pull as you say pull the most unlikely correspondences together and yeah. jam them like two rocks yeah yeah I kind of interrupted you. You were starting to talk about the idea. You were sort of starting to explain 
how this how these devotions are organized. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? It's what twenty twenty three. He did twenty three. Yes, twenty three devotions that kind of um, uh, serve as a as a, an account of his illness from mm-hmm. diagnosis or uh, to cure. Can you tell me about that? Right. Um, he he lets his mind go, and one day he'll be afraid. So he'll start just talking about why he's afraid, analyzing that. And the original that that I followed, there's a meditation, and then an expostulation, and then a prayer. So in the meditation, I'm feeling afraid. Why am I feeling afraid? Because these guys are whispering in the hallway, and he describes that. And then he goes on this uh, kind of riff (laughs) involving the Bible about the word fear. Mm-hmm. And he brings up all these passages all through the Bible about fear, 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 fear. All the things he's afraid of, all the things other people are afraid of. And finally, he kind of settles it by saying, the one the one thing I should be afraid of is God. That's really all that counts. And he, he ends up praying for a fear that makes all other fears disappear. <laughs> yeah. And, and he doesn't always come to such a neat resolution, but that's his pattern. He starts existentially where he where he is and then he compares it to everything he knows especially as a as a cleric as a vicar and then finally he wraps it up with a prayer and the prayers aren't always this nice sweet thing <laughs> they're uh, they're part of the wrestling match with god and uh he, he pushes back yeah um as it, it as you said he wrote this not not just in his own sickness but in a time of plague and mm. you started this project in a time of plague yes um and um tell me about what kind of insights you had about 2020 from reading this these devotions from 1623 mm. yes one of the first things is is the freedom to lash out i remember when the pandemic was first being identified and time magazine felt well we should involve some sort of uh, religious voice so they turned to nt Wright, which is a very good choice mm-hmm. and they let him write a, a little column in their special issue on the pandemic and he wrote about lament he said the one thing that he brings to the surface and among his own parishioners is it's it's okay to lament in fact the bible is full of lament the psalms job lamentations many of the prophets and don is a master of lament he gets it out Uh, we we are free to complain to remonstrate to argue to wrestle don is a master at that and again job was his master and I um it, it's best though not to lament alone. Mm. One of the turning points in Dunn as he lay there for about six weeks is is this passage about the tolling of the bell. There are mm-hmm. several different bells. One announces a sick person, one announces a person near death, and one announces the death and in funeral. And he had to kind of tell which which bell is ringing there. And at first he was very self-absorbed. So he would hear this bell, 
and think, well, it must be about me. Maybe I'm really dying and they haven't told me yet. You know, the doctor's hiding this from me. So it gets all anxious about that. And then he thinks, well, that's, that's pretty selfish. It's not all about me. Maybe it's my neighbor who actually died. And then he starts thinking about his neighbor and he realizes, I need to have a different perspective instead of being so me oriented. I need to pray for my neighbor, reach out as I can, them in the way I can in compassion toward him. And, and, and so he lets the things that happen during a day kind of inform him, always applying that brilliant wit and, yeah. and turn a phrase that has lasted for four centuries. Yeah. You remarked that the, um, the tolling the bells and he devotes three, three of his 23 devotions, at least mm. three, maybe four to the tolling of the bells. Right. Um, and you remark that, that that's a turning point for him. And I guess that's what you mean. Uh, what you just said was he went mm-hmm. from this sort of self-absorption to using the bells as a way. I, I think you said um, he sort of made a game. Uh, there's something. Um, what did you mean when you say he kind of made a, a game of the of the bells? Well, not a lot was happening in his life. Yeah, it's time. You know, he's just he's just lying there. And you know what it's like when you're sick and, and kind of feverish. And now we have TV going on in the background or something yeah. like that. But he didn't have that. And he was in quarantines. So there was nobody around him. And his mind is just playing games. His mind is playing games on him. Yeah. And so first he's got to figure out, okay, which one of these bells is going on here? Did somebody die or is it announcing my illness or what's going on? And then he thinks of some medieval story he heard about these monks who who rang the bells at the wrong time or something like that. You know, he just, he, let, he lets it go. Yeah. And uh, uh, you can understand why when you consider his situation there, which was not an easy situation to be in. Yeah. The, the monk story, if I remember correctly, they were supposed to ring the bell when someone was about to die, and they accidentally rang it in, w- when nobody was sick, and then the yeah. monk fell off. Right, <laughs> right. Died. Right, right. Yeah. The guy finally died, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, the one of those meditations, one of those bell meditations is probably the most well-known, surely it's the most well-known of, of these devotions. It's the... Mm-hmm. The it's the only thing I remember from the devotions from reading my high school is ask not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Um, I shouldn't say that's the only thing because I also remember No Man is an Island because my right. um, my high school teacher uh played the Paul Simon uh song that uses that lyric. Um, oh, okay, <laughs> it was like uh, uh um, yeah, it was, it was her way of showing just how contemporary she was and um. I'd love. Can, can you talk about since that's a, a passage a lot of people are familiar with? I'd love to, to hear about your process in in working on that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. It, well, what you mentioned there shows just the lasting power of his words here, because here Paul Simon quotes him, and Ernest Hemingway stole something from the same passage for the title of his book. You know, for whom the bell tolls, and uh, uh, I had to be very careful, just like translator of the Bible. When you start messing with Psalm 23, you got to be very careful <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because sure, you, sure. Know, you don't want to change as many words. What I tried to do in this book, two things. 
first, there's a lot of extraneous antiquated science in medicine mm. that just is a stumbling block to modern readers. Because state-of-the-art medicine back then was to apply cups and leading, and then they would apply pigeons to your mouth and uh, your feet, oddly enough, to draw away the evil vapors that are causing the illness. And, you know, you leave that stuff in there, and people will think, this is really weird. I can't trust this guy. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing is we have this impression that science is the hard firm lasting stuff yeah and literature and um philosophy is the fleeting stuff mm -hmm. well okay here's here's a pandemic 400 years ago none of the science they they knew back then applies at all so throw it away it's worthless yeah. <laughs> but the wrestling the existential crisis the humanity the human yeah, yeah. agony hasn't changed at all. So what we think is the hard science is actually very soft. It, it goes away. Yeah. The hard stuff is is the one man against God or with yeah. God, trying to figure it out, trying to come to, to some sort of terms with it. But uh, in, in this particular one, I, I enjoyed just pouring over this. I tell you, it, it's a lot easier to start with a great work of classic literature than a blank page, which I usually do when I start writing. <laughs> yeah. so, it was just a matter of kind of cleaning it up. He had long, long sentences. A couple of them were over 200 words. And when I would give this book to people saying, this could be really helpful to you now that you have COVID, you know, <laughs> the old one, they would say, huh? <laughs> you know, I don't read 200 word tweets, much less sentences. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but, it, but I'll just kind of go through this particular one. He hears the bell, and at first he has to figure out, is it a funeral bell or is it announcing a sickness? And, and then he suddenly thinks, or maybe it's about me. Maybe mm -hmm. they've caused it to toll for me. And then he starts thinking, well, I am joined to the same body, the church, and what happens to one member happens to all. So that's kind of the foundational theme mm -hmm. of this passage, that we're not disconnected. We're not an island. We're connected to each other. And and I'll follow with the next paragraph, which shows one of his images. He's, he starts thinking about being translated. And he says, all humankind has the same author and populates the same volume. When one person dies, a chapter is not torn out of the book, but rather translated into a better language. Mm. So you know? good. Yeah, isn't that good? God employs various translators, age sickness war justice and god's own hand guides every translation that same hand will bind up all our scattered pages for an eternal library in which every book will be open for inspection so you know he has these wonderful images and you think oh well he settled it but no he didn't settle anything he just had, he just had a cute image you know <laughs> and he realizes that and immediately he starts uh going back um into the tolling bell um, and he says no matter what bell is tolling whether it's a passing bell or the or the sick bell or, or different the bell tolls for whoever thinks it does and gives us an occasion to prepare for the time when we will be united to god mm. so it always tries to find a lesson in the middle of whatever is happening here's the bell uh in a panic kind of wonders if it's for him and he, well even if it is I should be preparing for death. You know, it happens to all of us. 
And back in his time, they took death very seriously. They would have uh, the art of dying. They would often have a skull on their desk just to remind them, you're not going to be here. You better forever. You better prepare for the time when you're not. And then he says, this bell that I hear signifies a passing of peace of myself from this world because he's connected to everybody. He's, he may not be dying, but whoever is dying, he's connected to. No one is an island, isolated and self-contained. If a chunk of earth be washed away by the sea, Europe is diminished as much as if it were a promontory or a friend's manor or my own. Anyone's death diminishes me because I am involved in all humanity. Therefore, never ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you and for me. So that's that's the cycle. He, he hears something, plays with the various images, that's the game. And then he makes it very personal and, and tries to give some sort of valuable lesson, redemptive lesson that a reader could take away from it. And, and he does that over and over. And sometimes he's successful and sometimes he just ends up kind of crying out to God. Um, but but that's generally the outline, as it were, that he follows. Yeah. You, uh, of course, that was uh, that was probably the most familiar passage in the in the book. What are some of the um, more striking and unusual images? Maybe one that you. It was so strange you weren't sure whether to keep it or or omit it that you decided to keep. Did yeah. Um, most of them I, I related to very well, calling the doctor, being afraid, uh, just the difficulty of being quarantined, the changing diagnosis. You know, these are things we all go through, uh, a rash and difficulty breathing, insomnia. I, yeah. I identify with that one. Yeah. And I would say if you had, if you made me choose one, there's one in in the 20th, the 20th uh, passage called purging. And let's uh -huh. not get into that, but that's not one that I uh, enjoy dwelling on in the translation yeah, right. period. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you, you say that you relate uh, in, in any of us who ever been sick, which is all of us relate to all of these, but you've also been specifically um, you write in the book about your own diagnoses. And, and I mean, you, you've recently been, I say recently, I think recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Has it been Correct. recent or? It was this year. Yeah. It this was year, in yeah. the very end of January, 2023. Yeah. So it's still very new, very fresh. Yeah. And it changes, it's amazing how it changes everything overnight. Uh, fortunately, I'm I'm reacting well to the medication, but I'm a slave to the medication. You know, if I miss, mm -hmm. I take pills, uh, dopamine-based pills four times a day, and if I miss one, I know it within an hour or so. Really? So my life kind of revolves around those pills now. Um, and, and John Dunn is right. You don't endure these things alone and they do make you very conscious of being connected to other people i think i mentioned in the book how right after i found my i heard my diagnosis i was on an airplane flying somewhere and there was a person in first class an elderly person who 
was fumbling around, couldn't get his suitcases out, blocking the aisle, and people were getting so upset because they were trying to catch another plane or get home or whatever. And uh, I, I realized that, that could be me. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? These, these things can progress quickly. And it does get you out of yourself and realize, mm-hmm. um, I need to pay attention to other people because all around me, there are people of different kinds of sickness going on. Some of it, some of it emotional and some of it yeah. uh, family oriented and some of it actual physical symptoms. Yeah. You have to think that the, the people who are grumbling were people who, at least at that moment, couldn't see them see themselves in that situation. You know, uh, right. And and fr- and I am one of those people, you know, I work out and and um I like to carry my own suitcase and all that. <laughs> and then suddenly that may change in the future. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's an adjustment for sure. Yeah. Send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you wrote a, 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 an idea that I thought was really interesting. Um, was your your thoughts on shame and debility? You know that that as we, uh, I mean, you just touched on that. A, a person who is debility, you know, experiencing debility, um, and slowing other people down and getting grumbled at. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's a kind of uh, shame in that. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not legitimate shame, but you, you can't help but feel these things. Right. And our society is not very good at, uh, and, well, in some ways it's not very good. I, I've been to other countries where people who are disabled immediately elicit pity and compassion from those around them. I've been to other societies like in India where devout Hindus would, many of them would think that a person who is disabled is being rightly punished for sins committed in a future or in a past Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really want to help these people because then you just make it harder for them. They may have to come back yet again. Mm -hmm. Um, But our, our our nation, of course, is a nation of laws and litigation and and (laughs) we have the the American Disability Act, and so visitors from other countries are impressed by the fact that we have these, we have ramps everywhere and mm. elevators and sidewalks that slope down for people in a wheelchair and things like that. So in some ways, we're we're quite aware of the disabled, but in other ways, the disabled would tell you that uh, they really stand out. You know, America is still perceives itself as kind of a a young, independent, thriving society, and uh, they feel left by the wayside. I was asked just this year to speak at a, an unusual group. It was an Easter Seals camp. Easter mm-hmm. Seals was started back in the days of polio, an epidemic that uh, killed my father, for oh, example. Yeah. I was just a year old. And um, mostly it affected children. My father would have been an, an exception there. And then years later, they're experiencing this post-polio syndrome, they call it. Um, and it's a dilemma because nobody's been teaching anything in medical school about polio for 40 years. I mean, it disappeared. Huh. But actually, these people had polio, and now it's come back, and they have a hard time getting medical care. But I heard their stories. They were almost all in wheelchairs or, or crutches, and they taught me about the disabled. And one person told me the most poignant stories of all 
being abandoned by his parents, just left in an institution for three years with no contact with the outside world. And then uh, at the end, he said, but I, I have to say that polio added to my life more than it took away. Mm. And I stopped and I said, that's a remarkable statement. Polio added to your life more than it took away. And I, I find that again and again in people, especially people who live with a chronic situation, and your first response is to want to get rid of it. But these things can be our teachers. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and Dunn explains that pretty clearly. Um, most people, when you ask them, at what time did you grow most spiritually? They talk about a very difficult time. Yeah, they rarely say, "Oh, I was like right here. I went to Disneyland, and uh, you know, I was in the Olympics, and I climbed a mountain." No, they talk about uh, the year the child was born with a with a defective heart, and they face mm-hmm. that issue of surgery and all that. Um, something along that line, just something that yeah. really stretches you. Yeah, I, 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 in one my favorite sentences in your book, you say those who live with pain and failure are better stewards of their life circumstances than those who live with, with success and something like that. Yeah. There's something being stewards of our life circumstances. Yeah. There's something ironic about the human condition. And the Bible is so clear about this because you go back to the old Testament, there were 39 rulers, Kings. There's one, one ruling queen in there, so mm-hmm. 38 plus one, I think. And um, you can just graph that when when things were going well, when the nation was prosperous, when it's winning all of its wars, when it has good leadership, uh, look out, because <laughs> then they start taking credit for it, they turn away from God, and uh, the nation starts to fall apart. And, and then when they do fall apart and they're invaded by Assyria or Babylon or whatever, they turn back to God and say, please help us. And God sends the prophets. And and then they, you know, it's the hard times where we turn to God. Mm-hmm. When, yeah. when things are going well, we tend to say, well, look at me. I'm pretty good. I'm smart. Yeah. And, and that's just the human condition. But God uh, has a special place for those of us who... When you look at the kind of people Jesus went to, they were the disadvantaged. They were the dis, uh, disaffected. They were the suffering. People with leprosy, my goodness. With, nobody would touch someone yeah. with leprosy. But Jesus did. And uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing as Jesus' followers as well. Yeah. I, I didn't realize, didn't put this together when I was reading your book. When you started the book... You didn't, you hadn't been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And when mm-hmm. you finished the book, you had been. Or when you started the right. book, you thought you were talking about COVID and you were. Um, but by the time you finished, you had a, another, um, a, a, you know, your circumstances had changed mm-hmm. medically. Yeah. Um, different, different bell was tolling, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, as I say, it, it changes everything. It, it did change John Dunn. He lived, what, I think eight years after this. He, everybody thought he was going to die. It turned out not to be plague. It was something like a spotted fever or typhus, something along that line, scholars think. 
but he became very uh death focused i think mm-hmm. and and confident he got a new voice it's like he had he had been through the valley of the shadow and he'd come out the other side and uh, you can still buy books of done sermons they're, they're wonderful to read but if you go back to the earlier ones they don't have that authoritative voice um he had yeah like what what else can they do to me (laughs) (laughs) kind of i uh yeah i had a a, a near kind of a near-death experience i had an automobile accident rollover accident where i broke my neck and they Mm -hmm. were afraid that a bone had pierced my carotid artery and told me if it did you you know you're going to be dead in five minutes or so (laughs) okay um but it was one of those turning points for me where i started thinking man i i I can't just live unintentionally now i have to live Mm -hmm. intentionally i have to figure out i've got this much time left how should i best spend that time and uh certainly this experience was like after john dunn changed his preaching made him uh, a, a very powerful voice and also made him uh, the, the, as you said earlier the metaphysical poets could be accused of being kind of cerebral yeah. and not really writing from the heart I think John Dunn because of this was changed from the heart and he when he looked out on his parishioners in St Paul's Cathedral he he saw the kinds of people that he was imagining from this deathbed you know mm. these, these are the ones that are around me that I, I i want to recover so i can tell them what i've learned yeah. so that i can help them he, he had that pastoral heart in a different way yeah did he keep writing poems in that eight that last eight years between he his- did not not very many they're pretty theological uh death be not proud i think is is one of them and uh um, what's the great one on forgiveness you know about um i am not done I, i'm not told yeah. you all my sin i am not done for i have more it yeah, yeah, yeah repeats it over and over yeah. yeah they they weren't like the early erotic poems for sure <laughs> yeah but uh but they were very solid you uh speak of his holy indifference to death in that last eight years after he wrote the devotions mm-hmm. um that i guess it, he he was interested in it he, he he wrote plenty about death if i'm not mistaken before but before his is that illness in 23 mm-hmm. um but all but as you said he has a confidence a you you uh you speak of uh was it fear and great joy that he experiences mm-hmm. yeah. um, with regard to i mean his his Posh before God was fear and great joy. Fear of God, but also great joy that he holds in intention. Right. That's not his phrase. That that is from Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It, yeah. it breaks off, you know, it breaks off yeah. that the, the women ran away from the resurrection with fear and great joy. And and then uh most scholars believe part of it, something else was tacked on to the end of that. Probably the manuscript ended right there. Mm. And what a great combination, fear and great joy. So nobody enjoys death. Nobody likes death. 
Yeah. There is an element of fear. We just can't help it because it's it's unnatural, which C.S. Lewis yeah. would say, well, that's a clue right there. Why should it be unnatural? It's, it's a, <laughs> it happens on 100% of people and animals. <laughs> yeah. But it feels unnatural, which which is a, sim, a sign, really, that um, it, it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there should be something else. And... But at the same time, there is great joy. And he kept trying to talk himself into that <laughs> in, in his prayers as he would try to imagine heaven. And, you know, who can do that? Um, we can't really, because nobody's come back with a reliable source and told us what it's like. You know, we have yeah. some people who spent 30 minutes in heaven or something, but yeah. nothing about eternity. A great way to sell books, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it is a good way. Um, there's a woman. Dr. Lydia Dugdale, who was a is a physician in New York City and was in there in the midst of the pandemic crisis when every room was completely packed with people and they're walking around, the doctors are walking around in these hazmat space kind of things. Yeah. And uh, she wrote a book on the art of dying. I think that's the title, The Art of Dying. And, th and that's what John Dunn uh, strove for, I think. And she talks about in those days, you would bring your people together, your family, your close friends, and kind of one by one, they would come in and, and receive a blessing, like the mm -hmm. old Jacob or Abraham, you know, yeah. um, with his sons. And, and uh, even when you're on your best deathbed, when they think you only have a couple of days to live, and, and done kind of stretched that out over the rest of his life, I think he <laughs> yeah. got prepared to die came to terms with it, didn't deny the fear, but uh, used that time. He had learned to trust God and used that time to prepare mm -hmm. to spend whatever the next phase of his existence looked like with God. Yeah. As you said, he didn't um, come to an acceptance of death the way like Kubler-Ross you know, treats that as a, as a stage of, of development, but rather... Um, or if in, if you can say accepted death, it was only because he believed in the resurrection and he mm -hmm. and he began to focus on the resurrection. Um, and in his poetry, I mean, his, his he had some of the best poetry of the resurrection um, of anybody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned Kubler Ross and people in the in the field. My wife was a hospice chaplain, so she knows this well. People in the field will say she was always misunderstood oh. because, you know, anytime you, you list five stages of grief or whatever, and, and I think there were five that she outlines, people automatically say, well, I get, I go through this one, and then I graduate and go to number two, and then I graduate. It doesn't work like that. Mm. You, mm -hmm. you could get all, all five at once or in the same day. And you could find all all five of those stages in John Dunn's book here, mm. uh, Undone, <laughs> uh -huh. because he has anger and fear and bargaining and you know all of those things, but not in a clinical, uh, educational kind of way. Just just the human response to illness that we all go through. Yeah. Um, we need to wrap up uh, here. Pretty soon, but I, I did want to ask you that the idea of the the ars moriendi, the the art of dying, mm -hmm. or the the um, memento mori, uh, you know these 
reminders, you know, keep keeping a skull on our desk or or whatever. Right. Um, we we live in a culture that that uh, segregates death off to where we don't have to think about it too much. Um, what? How do we bring back an appropriate uh, attention to death in our daily lives or our our workaday lives? Let's say. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if a global pandemic can't do it, I don't know what else can. <laughs> you know. Or, uh, we would see these. Hey, drones. the global pandemic. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't wear this mask. I go wherever I want to. Now I don't think about death very much, even though yeah. there was a time when I thought about it a lot more in the in yeah. 2020. Yeah, isn't that true? I mean, maybe that's a healthy thing um, if we don't get morbid. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, there's a balance there in the United States is on one side where where we kind of hide it away. And and of course, that was one of the most sad things about the pandemic where these people in memory care centers and in intensive care units who were used to having their few loved ones uh, come and visit them faithfully. And then suddenly they just stopped coming. Yeah. Or they'd wrap on a window. Dozens of people who loved him mm. died alone because he died go. of COVID in a hospital and yeah. didn't. I, it, it, I could easily imagine a scene in which we filed through and he he gave a blessing mm. and it didn't happen. Yeah. 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 So that was really one of the hardest things about it. And I, uh, I interviewed a chaplain here in Denver who was in one of these memory care facilities and they had a COVID outbreak. And I think 14 people died in mm. fairly short order. And in many cases, she was the one who actually informed the family. You know, the family could come in that place as far as the waiting room, the lounge outside. But then they would sit and wait, and she would have to go out and, and tell them that your relative just died. And they, they had never seen them living since the pandemic started. So uh, that's a very tragic thing. Which, of course, is true. Well, what's going on in Ukraine right now? There are a lot of island deaths going on where you're just yeah. in a trench somewhere and boom, a bomb falls on you and yeah. later they find your body. Um, it, it shouldn't be that way. When it is, it's death at its worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Philip Yancey, um, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm, I, uh, Maybe this won't be the last time we we interview. Next time you do a book, I want you here. So, so thanks oh, well, for being very kind. And I hope we can. Yeah. Well, it's great to be with a literature person uh, who understands, and I'm sure sat down and actually read this book and thought back to the first time we read this book <laughs> long time uh, ago. But but again, my goal is not to improve on Don John Dunn. Who could do that? My goal is to make him accessible so that his great wisdom can be imparted another 400 years this is the 400th anniversary so four centuries well may it uh, be so may it be so and i appreciate your help and helping get the word out my pleasure
This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.